Let's pray as we come and consider this passage in God's Word. Let's pray together. Father God, as we have been thinking about what your Word means to us as we desire to live as your people today, we thank you how you have challenged us and how you have instructed us more in the way that we are to follow. And I ask this morning for us all that you will continue to do that. Continue to show us the truth that is in your word so that we can be faithful to the life, the life of following Jesus that you have called us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we started looking at the second half of the Ten Commandments. The first half, uh, the commandments that talk about how we are to relate to God. The second part, uh, Commandments 5 to 10, talk about how we are to relate to each other. And so we come now at the start of these four shorter commandments as we have them in Exodus 20. And you might be quite relieved this morning that our passage is only four words long. Thou shalt not kill or you shall not murder. Can I even give you more encouragement? If you go back to the original Hebrew, it's only two words. So what you thought was going to be short has now been made even shorter. The Hebrew words, lo terat, you shall not murder. But it's more, as inevitably you're thinking, they're guessing, there has to be more to it than just two small words. These two words mean to murder, to slay with premeditation. It can also mean to shatter and to break down. So it's not just talking about an act, but it's talking about a way of life. It's not talking about that instant of a moment that we consider murder or killing, but it's talking about part of our life, what we're motivated by, what is our premeditation. And what's more, if we think of this commandment as we've been looking through them, out of all the ten, if you had to rank them from one to ten as to the one that you were keeping the most, It's most likely that with all of us, this is the one that we say, well, you know something, that's going to be an easy Sunday because it doesn't affect me. I haven't or don't intend to kill anyone. So therefore, that commandment, that's it ticked, fine, sorted, done. Let me read for you from a book that Christoph and I have been using to help us understand a little bit more. about the application of the Ten Commandments in life today, it's by a guy called David Searle. You've heard us quote it. Let me read his prayer in response to uh, reading this commandment. And he says this, Lord, when I read the Sixth Commandment, I congratulate myself that here at last was a law I had never broken. I was proud and ready to give myself credit as an upright citizen. I went on to think harshly of those who have taken the life of another until, Lord, I stumbled on your words about this law. And I found you saw the seeds of murder in in unjust anger, in gossip, and in sneers. And then the sword of your mouth wounded me, and the light of your eye opened my heart to me and I discovered the broken fragments of this terrible commandment littering my life. I remember, Lord, my intense irritation whenever that person appears. How he annoys me. It's a clash of personalities and he can't help it. 
but I feel such anger welling up in me. There have even been times when I have hated him, Lord. I remembered a conversation about a colleague. We stirred up a teaspoonful of fiction with a teaspoonful of heresy and a pinch of possible fact. And the mixture was, we made was cruel and insulting. We murdered a reputation that day. I remembered my biting sarcasm, the cutting wit of my words, which made some laugh, but my victim winced in pain as my arrows found their target. Lord, my complacency shrivels up when your word falls on me. I find that I am guilty even before this law. Reading something like that doesn't make us sit so comfortable in our pews this morning when we think of this commandment, and you shall not kill or you shall not murder. The reality for me in reading that that prayer, that very open prayer, was that I could see myself in it. And so a commandment that I would have quite happily ticked off as one that doesn't I have no, no worries about no need to worry about it, is actually the commandment that goes straight to my heart and proves that I have everything to worry about. And what David Searle does is present to us something that we didn't expect. Rather than challenging the actual act of murder that we may or may not commit, he considers what is behind that act. And he lists unjust anger, gossip, and sneering as the places where he sees the seeds of murderous thoughts. And when we look at the first murder in the Bible, in Genesis 4, we see that. Genesis 4 tells us, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Anger. Envy. That's what spurred Cain's heart in turning to evil and murder, to slay Abel. He wanted to satisfy something that was within him, something that made him self-righteous, that he was going to be the overall conqueror, the overall victor. And in doing that, what he does, he places himself as God. He is now the one who makes the decision of what makes him righteous. He is the one who makes the decision about what that's going to take. And so in his life and in his mind and in his heart, he sets himself up as the judge, the jury, and the executioner. And in effect, 
is putting himself in the place of God in his own life. And two passages from the Bible show us this. Hebrews 11 and verse 4. By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. This was what was at the heart of the issue. That the sacrifice that Abel presented was one worthy before God. It was the one that God expected and the only one that we could give or that Abel could give to God. Cain's wasn't just. His wasn't the the perfect offering that was needed. In fact, it was something that we read elsewhere in Scripture tells us that it was something of little regard to him, something that wasn't important. And he was rejected because he wasn't putting the thinking of God foremost in his mind. And 1 John 3 verse 12 says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain, putting himself up as the master of his own life and the master of the life of his brother. And God is very clear throughout all of Scripture that we can only have one master. And there is only one master for us to have, and that is God himself. It is he, God, who has given us life, and it is he, God, who has the right to take it away. I'm sure, as we've been turning on the radio and television over this past week especially, but the past number of months, we cannot have missed what's been happening up on the North Coast um, with Colin Howell and Hazel Both now have been convicted of and coming up away with their respective What were they trying to do? They were trying to set themselves up create their own little life that made them comfortable and made them happy. And they got away with it for 20 years. But what was going on was in their hearts, they were setting themselves up as their own God. They were fulfilling their own desires and passions. And they didn't care at what expense. The heartbreak of a community, the tearing apart of a family, the questions that have been asked by children over why and what and when and where. It wasn't until Hal came under conviction of, of this awful sin in his life that they eventually were caught and eventually were put uh, into the situations that they will now face in prison for the crimes that they have committed. They were setting themselves up as the masters of their own lives rather than following God's way. That's what drove them to commit those acts of murder, their own way being their own masters. So it's very clear that we should not take the life of another. And I think we would all agree wholeheartedly with that as we are here this morning. But if the root of murderous thoughts and actions come from our nature of wanting to get things our way, and if we want to be superior to others, What else does it mean for us? We could all, as we've said, pat ourselves on the back and be quite content this morning. 
But unless we realize that it is what is behind these ambitions that are the thing that do us the harm and damage that go against this commandment, well then we ignore altogether what God has for us. So let's listen to God and what he says as we try and move this into our own lives and thinking about it further, about what it means beyond that actual act of committing murder. What about assassinations? Not the sniper type who comes and takes his shot at a political or social leader, but the times when we carry out character assassinations. David Searle mentioned it himself, that moment where he got together with colleagues and came up with all these lies and telling stories that other people didn't need to know. Is it the same with us? Are we uh, having a vendetta against someone? Are we gossiping about them? Are we adding a little bit of the story to make it a little bit more spicy? Or indeed turning it so that it makes us look good? It makes us look superior? It makes us look like we are the masters? (coughs) Having been challenged by this this week, the past few days have been not pleasant in my thinking of all of this. Because I know how easy it is to slip into these conversations, to add to them, to build them, and encourage others to spread them for my own agenda or the agenda of a friend. And I would love the strength and courage to be able to go and apologize to people whom I have hurt who may not even realize it came from me. And there's also the times where I've been in groupings where these kind of things have been going on and I've just let it pass me by. I haven't done anything to stand up and say, no, this isn't right, this is wrong. Folks, as we look at our lives, as we look at this past week, as we will look into the week ahead and see what's going to happen in our homes, in our offices, in the places where we work, how... Have we and how are we going to engage with these conversations? Who are the people in our lives that are causing us a little bit of upset at the moment? Are we going to take that ground that Jesus calls us to take, to love one another and refuse to be the gossip and the one who will have this character assassination against someone else? It may mean that we will forgo whatever Things we thought we could gain, authority, superiority, but what it does is something greater in continuing to build and strengthen the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters sharing together, brothers and sisters in the faith being honest with each other, not desiring to break each other down, but to build each other up, putting aside our human desires and sinful nature so that God will be glorified in our conversations and in our actions. Matthew 15, we come across an incident where, again, the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are trying to find a fault with Jesus, and they're trying to get at Jesus through his disciples. And it basically centers around an incident where they have seen the disciples not following the teaching of the elders and not uh, washing their hands before they eat. 
And so they're accused of breaking the law. And Jesus comes back to the Pharisees and says, actually, guys, you're the hypocrites here. And Jesus lists the commands that they are breaking. And verse 17 of Matthew 15 says this. Jesus says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what makes a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. So the essence of all of this, the essence of our desire to gossip and set ourselves up, to sneer and to to bring sarcasm into our conversations, it starts in our hearts. It's the planting ground and breeding ground. And in a moment we'll come to think of how our hearts have become like that. But it starts at the heart level. And it's the same level where God does his work. Because if we recognize something of this in ourselves, we have a God who works at that same level, at the heart, changing us, challenging us, and motivating us to be more like Jesus. That's where he wants to do his work in us. So that this commandment, this sixth commandment, rather than patting ourselves on the back going, isn't that a nice, simple little four-word commandment that I will never break? It actually means that by the grace of God, we go forward each day in his strength, knowing that we desire not to break it. So our day-to-day lives, what we face tomorrow, How are we gossiping? What are we gossiping about? When was the last time that we checked our anger levels about certain people and situations so that we don't get fired up with this idea and notion of setting ourselves up as God by character assassinating someone else? And let's be clear about the anger that we talk about, that it is unjust anger. What rises within us that makes us want to be God rather than letting our Heavenly Father have His place as we submit to Him. It's not an easy thing. I'm fully aware of that simply because of how I've had to respond to this over this week. But I want to take a moment. I want to take a moment of response for us all. As we listen to God speaking into our lives, I want to allow you in prayer to take a moment before God and and work with him on this, deal with him on this, to let him do what he does best in continuing to shape us into Christ. So let's come and let's pray to him individually. And then let me pray for us all as we seek to, to put this part of God's word active in our lives. So please use this time to come in prayer before God. Father, you know our hearts and you know the conversations we have that spring from our hearts. You know the motives that drive us. 
this idea that we must have success in life. Father, the success that you call us to is success in Jesus, so that we will only boast in him and him alone as our Savior and our Lord. As we have taken a few moments to think about our lives and think about how we break this commandment every day, I pray that you will help us. Help us to know your forgiveness and make us free from the guilt that would hold us. And I pray that you will give us the courage to approach people, to seek their forgiveness, to build on the relationships that have been broken for the sake of Christ and for his glory because we know that we don't receive anything from it, but it all goes to him. Father, continue to deal with us and work with us in this so that we will be your people as you have called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we have taken that time to think about what it means personally, there is going to be an outward expression of all of this. And it happens in the social and political sphere of our lives. How we interact with society and and our political shaping. I want to say a few things that I have observed about our society. One is the number of murders in our society. If you were to go back 50, 60 years, it's most likely that in Northern Ireland, as with the rest of the British Isles, the number of murders per year would have been quite low compared to what we face today. One reason maybe perhaps is corporal punishment was still active and therefore if you killed someone you faced death yourself. Of course in Northern Ireland we have uh, we bucked that trend quite a lot with uh, the troubles coming in. And I think with the troubles that we have witnessed uh, in this province we've become a little bit passive in terms of death, killing and murder. We still think it's wrong but it doesn't shock us as much as it once did. We could have multiple murders in this city over one weekend as we did a few weekends ago and it does nothing to us. We think, oh, that's awful at the time but it doesn't motivate us to do anything else. And we allow murder into our home. We allow it through television. We allow it through computer games, not just with our teenagers and our children, but also many who still enjoy those childhood days of computer games. We allow it into our homes freely and we say nothing about it. It has become so passive to us, it seems that we just expect it now. And I guess I would have been in the same mind, thinking about, well, hasn't happened to me, hasn't happened to my family or my circle of friends, so therefore this incident of murder doesn't affect me. But whenever I started to appreciate the, how precious life is, it started to, for me to realize that every life is precious. And no one has the right whether it be in a soap opera, whether it be in a fictitious computer game where we are the one who is apparently the hero doing all the good things and slaying all these baddies, none of us have the right to take another life. 
Many of you know, as I've told stories before, of my time in Ivory Coast. And this is where my eyes were opened to the reality of death. Because we were caught in civil unrest and we were down the street trying to get out of this country. And there were bodies on the street with blood flowing. Dropped where they had been shot. And it made me realize this is not what God intended. God is the giver of life and God is the only one who has the right to take it away. When we consider the amount of murder that is in our society, the Christian church is quite quiet in its condemnation of it all. We are faced with really the, the three big ones, abortion, euthanasia, and war regularly. The things that seem to debate in and around the church. And of course, whenever they debate on radio, the church is always brought in to give an answer. So what should our response be to these three and other thing, ethical issues regarding life and death? Let me start with a little bit of history. Whenever our corporal punishment laws were done away with, we all think that it was done out of some grand Christian idea and a good biblical underpinning of, of why it should happen. The driving force behind the abolition of our corporal punishment was by the humanist society. And the church followed in suit. My reading of history says, uh, not that I made it up, by the way, in saying my reading of history, but as how I've interpreted history in reading it, it's telling me that the church followed suit to be on an intellectual level with the humanists. The church couldn't be seen as not having a voice, so it just joined in without any theological underpinning as to why this should happen. So it all ended because of a humanist ideal. Humanists don't believe in life after death. They believe that once this life is over, that's it. Your body decays and there is no more. There is nothing else. We are people of hope. We have hope in an eternity that is to come. And this shapes our view and our understanding and perhaps our argument of why we agree or disagree with these things in a different way. And I'm not going to come down this morning on an ethical right and an ethical wrong. That would be unfair for me to put my agenda to you. But what I want to offer in the few moments we have left is some principles that we can use in our thinking and understanding of how God wants us to respond to the things in politics and society. And it all boils down to an accurate reading of Scripture. And by accurate, I don't just mean how we interpret, but in fact that we actually do read the Bible. We've been encouraging you uh, since the start of the year with Bible Fresh initiatives to engage with God's Word. It's the only place where we can go to have a good understanding of what God wants for us in this life. Whenever we understand Scripture, whenever we understand the way of life that God wants for us, then we can better have an opinion on what we think of these issues that we will face as Christian people. And whenever we look at these issues, I see two clear distinctions. The first is what we've touched on already. Enforcing our opinions, um, are we desiring to put God to the, to the side and allowing ourselves and our voice to be heard rather than God's? Are we trying to put forward our strong belief rather than what God's saying and doing through us? Are we trying to set ourselves up as the judge and the jury rather than allowing God his place? 
As I have listened to the arguments, and trust me, whenever you are in theological study, they come thick and fast. As I've listened to these arguments, for and against these three main topics, but of course others as well, I've never been convinced either way. No one has ever persuaded me across to their side because they've never had a strong biblical underpinning of what they believe. What they are taking is this understanding of what society tells us, this pluralistic society. And so whenever these arguments come, we are not so hot on getting the biblical answers in. We do it because the rest of society thinks it's good. And I know there are exceptions. I know there are organizations like the Christian Institute who do put the theological input into all of this. But as we apologize for our faith, and I don't mean say sorry for it, but as we try and defend it and make it real to the people around us, are we clear about where our theology is coming from, our biblical thinking, the passages of Scripture that help us give our arguments? And this morning we've nailed murder. We know we shouldn't do it, and that killing is wrong if it is for our gain, for our comfort, or for our advancement. God is the giver and the taker, and we find that very clear in Job. Job has just received the news in chapter 1 about the destruction that has been brought in his life. And at this, Job got up in verse 21 and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. The sole authority of life and death lies with God. We don't get to decide. We don't get to decide. That responsibility has not been given to us but remains with God alone. And that is the first thing, that the sole authority of life and death is with God. The second thing to consider is what Scripture says is how God has given responsibility to the state. So yes, we are individuals, but we are part of a state. And the Bible, and in the New Testament especially, as we read what Paul has to say, tells us very clearly about the state and the authorities over us. And in Romans 13, he gives us an outline uh, Paul does about the responsibilities that the state is to have. And he says, Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Conscience. seems to me that this divine authority uh, is given to agents, the state, as Paul says here, to be agents of God in the world. They have been given the right to protect the people under their care. And with that, they have to be just and they have to be fair. They have to resemble the fairness of God. But they also have great responsibility. They are accountable and responsible to God for the care of the people 
that are under them. They cannot rule by their own authority or ideals. They are to rule by God's. So this is why it's important when we come to think of voting. And yes, I know there are elections coming up later this year, but whenever we go to vote, are we voting for people and parties with policies that reflect what God's word says? Not because a political ideal sits comfortably with us, but because God's word tells us how we are to live and therefore how the society is to live. This is the authority that God has given to the leaders above us, but he has given us the responsibility to ensure that we are putting forward his people for the tasks that they have and trust that he will use them to bring about his good for us. Whether we agree or disagree with ethical aspects of society, the one thing that we are called to do is be faithful to God and his word. To know what his word is teaching us and to live it in our lives. So that means live it in how we interact with each other, right back where we started, the seeds that are in our hearts, forgiving one another, not gossiping, not sneering, not being sarcastic, but being true and real. And it also means that we have an ethical responsibility in society to be God's people in this country where we live, where we work and serve. We are to care about justice and we are to care about a hope for the future, both socially and spiritually. And this is reflected in how we vote, the political movements we are part of and the social engagement that we have in this area. The sixth commandment is more than just consideration of who pulled the trigger or who calls the shots. The sixth commandment calls us to obedience to God in our actions and our thinking. We are to love one another in Christ, no matter who has done what to us. And we are to live as part of this society, as God's agents, and not agents of political ideals or social agendas, but to be truly his. Let's pray. Father, we have been presented this morning with more than we thought. Whenever we think of what it means to, to take another's life, it goes much deeper than the action, and it goes right into our hearts. So I pray for our hearts. I pray that rather than it being a, a feeding ground and a nurturing ground for what we see on our televisions, what we see in video games and what we read in novels and, and magazines, I pray that our hearts will be the seeding ground for your word. It will be the ground for you where you will grow in us. And by you growing in us, we will look at this world, this world that is broken and fragile and unjust. And we will desire to be your people, your agents, because we are motivated by you. I pray that we will never be motivated by a pluralistic society and its agenda. Help us to remain true to your way of life that you have called us to. Father, for the past number of weeks, we have been affirming that you are good. And we've been challenged that if we believe you are good, then your way of life is good for us. So teach us how to live through this commandment. 
and spring in us each day that desire and love for Jesus to go into this world and serve him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.